Hidden Gems, Episode 49, Designer Spotlight on Gunter Burkhardt. Welcome to Hidden Gems, a board game podcast where we review unusual, forgotten, and underappreciated board games. We're your hosts. My name is Cameron. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. Thanks for listening to our show. I got to do both jobs today. I know. Cameron, you're going to have to do double duty throughout. (laughs) I'm going to have to do some extra work today, too, with all these rules explanations. That's that's right. For anybody who's listening, you may notice, well, of course you've noticed, that Chris is not with us on the show this time. And how could you not notice, given that Chris has been on, in 49 episodes of us doing this show, Chris has not missed a single episode. That's right. He has not. That's right. The rest of us have been slacking off. He's been working hard the whole time. Yeah, I'm feeling the weighty burden of bringing all of Chris's cliches today. So since he's not here, I'm yeah, going to sit in his seat. So you, you got to come through with it. Exactly. I'm going to well, channel Chris as much as I can. So. Well, as admirable as it has been for Chris to have participated in every episode up to this point, like all of us, he also needs a break from time to time. That's and right. so well deserved. Yeah. It was also Chris's birthday recently. Happy birthday, brother. Yeah. Happy birthday to Chris, but we decided as a group that we should give him a break. So taking on the burdens of teaching games and doing the intro and doing all that stuff That's right. as Chris usually does. So Chris makes it look easy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd say I'm pretty excited it's easy. <laughs> that he's not here so we can talk about him because he's not here. So, so I can ask questions like, who is the most evil person that you play with when you're on board game night? Says the guy who took an adversarial move on the first turn of a game. <laughs> oh, true. Chris wasn't we'll, playing. We'll get there. We'll get there. If Chris isn't playing, Cameron's the next best option. Yeah, exactly. True. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Well, since it's banter time, do you guys do anything interesting or get into anything new recently? I have something. I was trying to remember if I've talked about this on the show before. I don't think I have, but if I have, I guess people are going to hear about it again. But I've actually been playing Frosthaven, oh, which has cool. been a lot of fun. So. I missed out on the whole Gloomhaven rage. I kind of was poo-poo on Gloomhaven at first. I was like, well, it doesn't deserve to be number one game, whatever, whatever. But I heard enough people talk about it. The Frosthaven Kickstarter came around. I was like, forget Gloomhaven. I'll just go all in, get Frosthaven, see how it goes. So I've been playing with my son, my oldest, and then a good friend of mine and his oldest son. So it's oh, been a lot of fun cool. just being able to do the father-son thing. And yeah, we're a couple scenarios in, and it's it's a really cool system, yeah. the way they have it put together. So I've been That's really brilliant. enjoying that. It's long. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, even just an individual scenario mm-hmm. it takes three or four hours. Um, it's a lot of game there. It's a lot. Yeah, we'll be playing this forever. But, uh, but yeah, super good writing, honestly. For a board game, the writing is actually pretty good. The storyline has been interesting so far. Really enjoying it. I'm excited for you because your son's probably a really good age for that, right? Oh, yeah, he loves it. Like, uh, both of them, they're uh, totally into it. Like, oh, naming their characters and, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. And so. it is a great job of being a co-op game that you can still play together, but there's too much information for each person to deal with for anyone to, like, captain the thing. Right, yeah. I'm I'm just trying to remember the 60 pages worth of rules to get yeah. us through it without screwing things up. But yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. What about you, Bill? Well, uh, I guess I'll go with the one along those lines. I was going to talk about, was it The Rest of Us? The Last of Us? The Last of Us. That's what I'm thinking of. I just watched the last episode of that the other day because we talked about that on here for a little bit. And Oh, you I, finished the season? I finished the season. I got the seven-day trial uh-huh. HBO. So. So I had to binge watch a bunch of it yesterday. It's awesome. Recommend it. But also, since you mentioned Frosthaven, I'll mention that I've got a group that we're playing Lord of the Rings Quest for Middle Earth. Okay. Is that one of the ones you guys did for the podcast? 
No, it's different. Okay. That was Middle Earth Quest. Oh, how could I get? How, how could I have gotten confused? <laughs> There's only right. so many words that you can right. reorder when naming yeah. a Lord of the Rings I, game. I, I know. I think this is like BGG rated 100 or something wow. like that. So it's, oh, it's, it's pretty good. Okay. It's pretty good. What's that? What sort of game is it? It's got a phone app that goes with it, okay. and you have board pieces that come out at different times as your progressing i guess that are like oddly shaped hex pieces mm-hmm. and they will come out as you're kind of moving forward in your adventure mm-hmm. kind of thing like you're <sighs> discovering the map as you play as you're discovering oh, the map cool. and one of the the weird things is is it's funny how these games try to fit within the canon and not like mess things up but this is suggesting that while bilbo was back home at the shire bad things were happening and so he was having adventures there so bilbo's even part of the adventure i want to say that i think aragorn's in it and then there's some other mm-hmm. side characters that are not in the books but they're basically protecting the shire from evil things that are happening so we played it once got our asses handed to us <laughs> so we're gonna put pl- we're gonna play it again this wednesday night and I'm, I'm looking forward to that so is it like a a campaign type thing where you yeah. advance through or it's just a singular experience oh it's a campaign so oh, okay. uh cool. yeah we'll we'll definitely be picking a night per week that we're gonna be maybe yeah. moving along so. awesome very cool yeah that sounds fun so for me one of the things that casey and i have been doing recently is we kind of got back into playing video games together um so we oh, yeah <laughs> tunic well, yeah. do you do you play any other video game than Tunic? <laughs> do I? I've, I haven't oh, played anything that's right. since no, then. You're, I reached out to you because I was playing Tunic. That, right, right. Yeah, I was playing by myself. I had some time. I just picked it back up a little bit. I beat one boss and then I haven't done much else since ah, then. Okay, okay. <laughs> but yeah, so she and I together, she was like, I really miss playing, uh, played a lot of Roller Coaster Tycoon back in oh, the day wow. when yeah. she was a kid. She and her twin brother. And I had never played it. I was like, actually, I played one of those type of games and I couldn't ever figure out how you know do it was like sim city or something like that i could never figure out how to make it actually work and she's like oh yeah no it's great so we, we actually found that there's a switch version of it that you can get and so we played through a bunch of scenarios of that and then kind of we're like oh it's really fun to spend time together playing video games and cooperating so we actually went back to a type of game that we played early on in our relationship which was this one called abduction oh yeah you've talked of, about that before yeah I've, I've talked about it before and it's similar to you know to these games where you you're just like plopped into a world and you just go around and you pull levers and you try to unlock doors and you try to find codes well the very sort of first iteration of that is missed so yeah, we yeah. we figured out how to buy it on steam and then get a like basically just a bluetooth console controller yeah and hook it up yeah. to my computer so we're actually able to play Mist together on our tv so through, do you actually through my computer so in that version you actually move around in 3d in Mist. Yeah. Like in the original Mist, it was you click a screen and you go left or you click oh, the screen and you yeah. go right. Oh, so yeah. this is, it's a remastered version. Uh, okay. Um, okay. I think the Steam has like the 1996 version or whatever, but mm-hmm. this is like a, a remastered one for Mac, I believe. It's Mist, available on, mm. on Steam. Mist was the very first, first video game I ever played. Oh, really? So, uh, you know, it's other claim to fame is it's the very first video game. I think someone might catch me on this that was on CD-ROM because of the, oh. the pictures that were on it. They were okay. high detailed and high depth. Yeah. Yeah, and stuff yeah. like that so cyan <laughs> so for those unfamiliar with the game what happens in in this game is basically you just start on an island and that's it you're not told anything there's no intro there's nothing and you just have to go around everywhere and interact with what you can interact with and inspect things and if you see a wall of books like you should probably go read books and you <laughs> should actually read the books because they have actual pages in them with clues and hints and oh yeah and it, it's all very vague and it's slowly over time as you sort of 
take in all the information that you can, you start to see where you should go and what you should try. There's like boxes that'll just have like three numbers that you can enter and a button. And it's like, oh, I need to figure out almost like an escape room, right? <sighs> yep. <laughs> and you're just going and slowly figuring out, oh, here are the clues. Maybe I should try this there. Maybe I should try this here. And every so often you get sort of an interactive element with a character that will give you honestly kind of still a vague <laughs> message. But it's been really interesting to do. And, and we kind of, you know, how a lot of couples will watch a TV show together. We don't mm -hmm. play it individually. Right. We only play it together and work on it. I mean, this type of book, you have to like take notes. Right. And mm -hmm. sometimes, we, I mean, we had a puzzle where literally we had to work out every permutation of, you know, a three number possibility given the way that the controls moved the dials and stuff like that and it was it was kind of a brain burner what what i find absolutely hysterical about this especially coming from you when this came out when i was younger this was what the old people got who didn't know what computer games really were, yeah. <laughs> were all about because we had like duke nukem and doom and right. descent and all these other you know you know awesome i guess action games and mm -hmm. we're like this came out and the old people had computers who wanted to do things with it would buy that game yeah, yeah. So I guess I fit into the old people category exactly, when I was little. Which is absolutely hysterical. Which is fitting, probably. Yeah. Mm -hmm, so right. that's been really fun. And then the other one I'll mention is for those out there who haven't heard of Overcooked, there's kind of a series of games on Switch called Overcooked. And you're basically, yeah. it's just kind of like chaos kitchen. It's a poorly organized kitchen and you're like two chefs running mm -hmm. around and you have recipes that you have to prepare on the different stations and deliver them. And do the dishes. And, and do the dishes stuff. and right. everything. Put fires and, out. Which sounds like it would be ridiculous. Yeah, if you leave it on there too long, everything mm. catches on fire and then the fire spreads across the whole right. kitchen so we had a lot of fun actually this afternoon we played a lot this afternoon it was really fun that's just when my daughter is dating a chef and they they play that together all the time that's They're, great it's yeah. funny that's i need terrible. to get that one back out i got it to play it with the kids a long time ago we played it like once or twice and then got distracted and i kind of forgot that i had gotten it so it's yeah. honestly pretty challenging. It's not for the for the faint of heart. Casey and I talk about how we have to have a growth mindset and because it's easy to kind of get run down and be like, oh, I don't want to play that level anymore. You know, it's, it's marriage building. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's, you have to communicate. You literally have to sit you there. burn the onions yeah. again, Cameron. You have to talk to each other out loud mm. the whole time. It's great. Right. That's my onion. Yeah. Stay away from that onion. Cool. Well, I think uh, we got a great cocktail here. Oh, yeah. You want to tell us what we're drinking, Bill? You're the cocktail master tonight. Yeah, so I was looking at the weather report earlier in the week, and it was saying that the, the weather here in Raleigh, North Carolina, was going to be in the 30s and rainy and cold. We had a little bit of snow this it morning. literally snowed this morning. So it's right. our classic North Carolina spring fakeout. So, exactly. So anybody who lives in North Carolina has probably experienced this, like, without a doubt, every year it happens that late February, early March, we get Wacky spring. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, it becomes like 75 degrees, 80 degrees for like two or three weeks, and everybody's like, this yeah. is awesome. I came to play games last sunday wearing shorts yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but then mid-march hits and we get a snow or something winter <laughs> weather and then it's back to spring right but it's every year you get that fake out and then we're back so anyway, sorry, Bill. That's right. No, that's okay. That's good. So we're doing Gunter Brinkhart, who's who's German, of course. So I looked for German cocktails online, and I came up with a nice, good, warm drink. This is called the Rumple Snuggler. It's a basically a liquored up hot chocolate. So um, in it, you have one and a half ounce of Bailey's Irish cream, an ounce of Rumple Mints peppermint schnapps, eight ounces of hot chocolate. That was kind of eyeballed, and whipped cream. So pretty simple, but did make the, the hot chocolate today with the milk and the Hershey's deep, you know, 80% cocoa thing Ooh, nice. or whatever yeah, earlier it's today. Really, it's really good. Oh, good. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, it was very cool. tasty on a on a cold winter's night. That's right. Well, good. I'm glad you guys are liking it. I, and for later, I brought the peppermint schnapps in here in shot glasses <laughs> so that we can pretend like we are at the ski lodge here and and they'll augment once the peppermint schnapps is gone. So I mean, nice. the, perfect. The hot chocolate's gone. <laughs> very cool. All right. Well, speaking of Gunter Burkhart, so Bill had to take on the oh, yeah. take on the duty of doing some research on our designer spotlight. I know there probably wasn't a whole lot of information out there. So what, what did you manage to find, Bill? <laughs> well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Found out that Gunter was born in 1961. He has 94 games on BGG, and we played a few of the games here on Hidden Gems. Potato uh, Man, Coop for Kessel. Mm-hmm. They were pretty wide-rangingly <laughs> yeah, rated. I, I'm interested to see everyone's thoughts on these games. We gave Potato Man twos, I think, mm-hmm. and Coop for Kessel sixes. Yeah. So we'll see how this goes. Right. Well, some other notable games he's done is Dragon's Breath, Honga, and Machu Picchu, and some other ones. So when I did a, a Wikipedia search, I found basically just this. He's a German game designer. He's also a high school geography and math teacher, and he designed several games with his children. If you go to his website, you'll see that... That hasn't been updated since 2008. <laughs> 2018, <laughs> but yes, a long time. And it features Funkelstatz, which is a children's game of the year in 2018 that he basically designed with his daughter lena burkhart so i was thinking gosh this is pretty light on his information so where do you go these days when you don't have information chat gpt so (laughs) so i asked chat gpt about gunther burkhart the first one was wolfgang kramer is a name that became synonymous with the excellence in the world of board game design I included the uh, the Sealand with it, and so it went directly to Wolfgang Kramer. So that didn't work out. Halfway through that paragraph, it gets to Gunter, who's the co-author on, on that. Gunter Burkhart is a visionary and trailblazer in the world of contemporary circus arts. As the founder and artistic director of the world-renowned circus company Cirque Eloise, Burkhart has been at the forefront of circus renaissance since the early 1990s. I'm you <laughs> might be talking about a different I'm uh, thinking we're talking about a different Burkhart. So I tried several different ways of... Uh, of getting to the correct Gunter Burkhart. And my last question was, is Gunter Burkhart a game designer? And ChatGPT said, yes, Gunter Burkhart is a game developer. He has designed several board games, including Sealand, Finca, and Tickle, among others. Burkhart is also known for his contributions to the world of contemporary circus arts. <laughs> 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 Having co-founded the internationally renowned Circus Ron Kali in 1976, which I don't think he really did, but <laughs> I mean, somebody out there may, may actually know that he does have this secret side. But anyway, that's, that's, that's all perfect. I got. I'm glad we assigned that to you. I would not have thought. Despite my technology background, would not have thought to use ChatGPT for that. So I'm also really awesome. glad that, at least so far, we are not depending primarily on things like AI and ChatGPT mm. for our sources of information. Oh, really? Because all my <laughs> reviews are coming from ChatGPT. Right? Perfect, perfect. You <laughs> yeah. had it right, your final thoughts for you? Exactly. Bill is actually a robot. Right, right, right. Exactly. Hi, ChatGPT. What are my final thoughts on C? <laughs> it is pretty amazing. I've done it a few times, asking them about... Things like what's the best area control game out there or some oh. other ones. And it, it will come up with some, you know. That are actual area control games? Yeah, actually, <laughs> they are. It's amazing what it can do. All right. Well, with that, you guys want to get into the games? Let's do it. Let's go. Build successfully and earn lots of money. The large property is still undeveloped. Gradually, you use building blocks and platforms and let buildings grow upward. 
If you act cleverly and keep an eye not only on the area, but also on the height, you can collect a lot of money. The higher the structures get, the more tension mounts. Can I implement my construction plan when it's my turn again? Or will one of the players beat me to it? In order for the game to remain exciting until the end, a little bit of luck comes into play in addition to tactics. Get into the construction business and help build Casa Grande. Nice. That was definitely not written by ChatGPT. <laughs> it was written by Google Translate. <laughs> right. That's true. You can tell when people don't necessarily spend a lot of money on their, their color text marketing. Or maybe it sounds better in the yeah, original To be language. fair, it probably sounded better in German. Yes, that's probably true. All right. Casa Grande, published in 2011 by Ravensburger, designed, of course, by Gunter Burkhart, currently ranked on BGG 5,875. So in Casa Grande, players are competing to gain the most points through their contributions to building the Casa Grande, a large structure of blocks and platforms that looks like a giant interwoven collection of like apartments and walkways, basically. The board is a square 10 by 10 grid, around which is a track, where each side of the track has five spaces, not including the corners. So each of the five spaces is next to two of the rows of the center grid. It's a little hard to visualize. You can look up pictures on BGG if you are unsure. The board also displays a large bonus point track, which runs from zero to nine. Players begin the game with a marker on the outside track and a marker on the five space of the bonus point track. They also receive 28 plastic interlocking blocks and a set of cardboard platforms in their player color. These platforms are different polyomino shapes, so think Tetris shapes. A player's turn is very simple. They roll a single six-sided die, move their player marker the corresponding number of spaces in a clockwise direction around the outer track. The player then may move as many additional spaces clockwise around the track as they wish, so long as they have a bonus point to spend for each additional movement. The player then must place one of their blocks onto any unoccupied space within either of the two rows of the grid that their marker is now next to, unless they end their movement on a corner space. If you end your movement on a corner space, the player does nothing else but moves their marker three spaces up on the bonus point track. So once a player has placed a block, then they may optionally, if they're able to, place one platform, and that is what scores you points in the game. So the scoring is fairly straightforward. Basically, when you score a platform, you score a number of points equal to the number of blocks in the platform itself. So think Tetris shapes again. They're made up of smaller cubes, right? So the number of cubes in the, in the platform times the height of that platform. So if I placed a Tetris L shape, which is four blocks on the third level of the structure, I would get four times three, 12 points. Now, this all sounds great, but where's the actual challenge, right? So the challenge here is that each platform type has several squares on it with white outlines. These are usually on the edges of the shape. And each square of a platform has a, has a hole cut out of the center of it. The blocks that we're placing on the board have little pegs that stick through the top of it, which is how everything fits together and doesn't fall apart. But it's also to show that when you place a platform down, all of the squares that have a white outline must have your color block underneath it and no other space on the shape can have your color block underneath it. However, you can place it on top of other people's blocks, which can be very mean, Bill. <laughs> but moral of the story is you need to have your blocks underneath the primary support positions of each platform. One other important note is that players can place blocks on top of any completed platform, not just their own. 
If a player places a block on top of someone else's platform, however, that awards that player a number of bonus points equal to the height of the platform. And that's pretty much it. The game ends at the end of any round in which a player has placed their final block. And the most victory points at that point wins the game. So that is more or less how you play Casa Grande. Well, more or less, that's a new one. Yeah. You know, you it's not generally, it's not. Yeah, you got to vary it up a little bit, you know, <laughs> live on the edge. So when I was playing this game, the thing that I kept thinking about, you know, because you have this vertical structure, it reminded me a lot of like Rumus, which we played mm-hmm. way back many episodes ago. I don't remember which one, but it definitely has a unique look to it on the table. So what did you guys think about the look of it? It appears like it could be really fiddly. Did you find that to be an issue? What did you think about the structure building portion of it? Yeah, I mean, I think especially when you get this game going, it's pretty impressive to look at. I think they did a good job choosing colors and everything to where once you actually get a bunch of the structures built, it looks kind of impressive. It looks like what you would expect in kind of a big city, you know, apartment complex. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think the game is really visually impressive. I like the way that you have to plan these abstract shapes as you're laying them down and and all our different plays. And I think I played this five or six times. They all manifested in a different shape and structure Mm -hmm. as the game progressed, Mm -hmm. which was kind of interesting to just see how everybody's minds work in different ways as they're trying to score their points. Right. Like sometimes I think you guys had said in previous games, the structure that you ended up building was actually a lot like wider at the base Yep. And one of the games we played, we were like working on something like 12 tiles vertically up seven floors or something like that in this really small portion of the map. Right. Yeah, I think I think what surprised me playing this game, especially at four players, was how tall the structure got. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, it's going to be kind of like Rumus. You know, you get up four or five levels or whatever. I mean, we had structures that were eight, seven, eight, nine mm-hmm. levels right. high, which when you start talking about those multipliers for the scoring makes it a really interesting scoring dynamic because like towards the end of the game you can potentially be scoring huge amounts of points yeah but it gets super difficult to actually get a platform down up that high right um, and, the, and the size of the piece that you're able to place is usually smaller so it's right. funny because like you, you it really never goes too far beyond that like low 20s sort of a scoring thing like you imagine if you're seven high but the only thing you can place is one that's three right. you're only going to get 21 points we saw some bigger than that Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting debates or trade-offs about this game is that you have these big platforms. I think the largest one you have is three by three. So it's a nine nine platform, but it requires four pylons, one in each corner of that square. And so a piece like that is easier to get down, obviously lower in the structure, but you score less points for it. If you got that down higher, even just like on level two or level three, you're scoring Mm -hmm. a ton more points for it. But you have to like weigh that against, well, is the effort worth it? Am I going to get blocked in? Should I just go for something smaller and more Mm -hmm. simple just to get a platform out there? Right. Um, Because often it's, it's easy to block something like that. Right. All, all For you sure. do is like is knock out a corner. One of the things I'll also mention is as the structure gets higher, a reminder that when you put your pylon down on somebody else's platform, it moves the track on the left-hand side. And I don't think you mentioned this, but the track has a max number of nine. So mm-hmm. if the person gets all the way to nine, they get $9 that goes towards their score. But that track is reset to zero. And so it kind of restricts them on their ability to build things maybe where they want to build them because they have to take the exact number on the dice at that point. So yeah. it's a little fascinating balance there. Yeah, Yeah. I think that probably opens up what I think is one of the most interesting things to talk about in this game, which is the idea of that sort of bonus point track management, right? Because on the one hand, yeah, like if you get bumped over the top, you're getting paid for it. And like nine points is not a small number of points in this game. it's not. But when you achieve that, it's pretty important because if you're trying to make moves or you're when trying you to make someone else achieve. That. Well, right, right. Sometimes that can actually be good, even though they're getting paid for it. Right. 
Right. Because you need that flexibility in order to build what you need to build, right? You need to be able to move a couple spaces ahead. You're not always going to roll what you need. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that transitions us perfectly into the topic of the dice rolling, right? Because I think Mm -hmm. that's probably one of the more controversial parts of this game, if there is one. Well, there is one. (laughs) Is it the dice? (laughs) This is is the one game that Chris played with us before we decided that we were going to take over this episode. And uh, I think he had some pretty strong thoughts about the die. He's not here to defend himself on this. But I know that he had some pretty strong thoughts about the dice rolling aspect of this. And and, I mean, I can understand that, right? So any game where you're rolling a dice and your ability to do things on the board is dependent on what you rolled, there can be an issue with that. I liked the fact that the other primary mechanism of the game is this bonus point track, which is sole purpose is to enable you to mitigate the roll of the dice. Now, of course, like Bill said, if somebody knocks you over the top of the track and you drop to zero, right, then you're taking whatever the die roll is, right? Right. Yeah. But what did you guys think about the, the tactical nature of that track did you feel like you had enough control to be able to do what you wanted to do did it feel restrictive Mm -hmm. like what what did you think about that yeah it's interesting because i feel like there's this tension in this game where kind of on multiple fronts there's this sort of random aspect of the dice roll and then there's like something that you can do to to mitigate it right Mm -hmm. so for example the obvious thing is the dice roll and the flexibility of being able to spend those points in order to move it ahead by a little if you don't roll ideally but the other way that the game gives you to sort of mitigate that points management track is you are incentivized to not just get down what you think is going to score you the most points, but actually just get stuff down so that other people will build on your stuff which right. bumps you up that track. If you don't have that kind of infrastructure in place, like then you're not going to essentially get paid and you need that because if you don't have it, you become dependent on rolling exactly what you need to get yourself into the corner to choose to stay there. Yeah, that's and, that's an important note, the right? The only way to acquire bonus points is either to land on the corner, which right. is a random Which maybe you'll roll. get lucky enough to happen a few times in the game. Or if you're Bill, it'll happen to you every time. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Or, every roll. or you have someone else build on your platform, which Again, both of those are kind of out of your hands a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Aside from making sure that you have something out on the board that other people are incentivized to build on top of, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's not necessarily out of your control because if you have a platform at the highest level, it's pretty much guaranteed somebody's going to put something there because that's the only way they're going to get points. Yeah. Right. So that it's absolutely going to happen. The trick is getting that platform down because especially when there's four players and all of you are vying for uh, that next level platform and you're thinking, I want one that's four or five, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Versus the three, there is a three square tile that's pretty easy to get down. It can be tricky. Mm-hmm. And part of that is, you know, looking at the other players on the board and seeing how much flexibility do they have on that board? What are they really vying for? They may be, you know, already working on something on a lower level, so you feel pretty comfortable that you're going to be okay. But other times, you know, this game has got a little bit to take that. To yeah. It. <laughs> oh, yeah, for, for sure. sure. It's definitely there. It is a very tactical. And I feel like exactly. if you go into this game trying to strategize, you're going to be let down, right? It is not super deep in terms of strategy. Right. You're you're basically taking the best role that you can get and trying to make do with it. Yeah, right. right. Um, do the best with what you're given. Now, that leads to situations, though, where you might get two out of three pylons down or three out of four pylons down for a platform and then somebody builds over top of you, right? Do you guys think that there are ways in the game to mitigate that or is that an inevitable occurrence, right? Because I think yeah. going back to Chris's experience, I think that was something that frustrated him in that he was going after these platforms 
platforms, like three three pylon platforms, which is most of them. They're mo- most of them are three, and getting like two of them down, and then not able to get the right dice roll to get the third one down, and then somebody would build over top of it. Mm-hmm. Right. What What are your guys' thoughts on that type of situation? Yeah. I think definitely. And I saw you do this one time and it struck me because it was kind of like, ah, that's a good call. And it was like, you were thinking I'm going for this. I think it was a five L right. Where it's like three and then two more. Right. And it was on your turn and you're like, you know what? I think I'm just going to put the straight one right here and move on because I don't think that I'm going to get it. I think, oh, you need to be able to do that. You need to be willing to do that. Right. Because if you don't, then you, you are setting yourself up to, it's got to go all the way around the table. You know, yeah. and maybe you'll get bumped over the end and have zero flexibility next time or whatever. And you just for whatever reason won't be able to get that third one. Maybe you need to be willing to take fewer points. Right. I mean, I feel like we're, we're transitioning a little bit into dislikes. I do wonder if this game has a situation where you can end up in a hole. That if you do end up at the zero point score, so you have no flexibility on your dice rolls and any kind of momentum you're trying to get to put a platform down at the higher levels just doesn't manifest. And you're just putting, you know, pilot feels like almost randomly on the board mm-hmm. when you can't get the right role to actually complete something. And I think that happened you know, to Chris. And I think I've seen it happen to you, maybe Cameron, where it happened three or four times in a row. Mm where you just you couldn't get a structure or a shape started just because things were moving along too fast around you. Yeah, I found it to be that you always kind of have to have a backup plan. I'm not going to sit here and say that there is a way to play this game where you can avoid that situation because there's not. It's going to happen sometimes, right? It's a tactical game. Things are going to happen to you. Some people will like that. Some people will not. We'll find out whether I like that or not at the end, I guess. I think you always have to go into it, though, kind of like to your point about what you saw I did in that one game, right, with a backup plan or or being willing to, like, use a smaller platform than you might otherwise be able to do if you got lucky enough, mm-hmm. right? And then play the odds and see and see what's going on. The other thing I noticed was that, especially in the game we played with Ken, where everything was kind of concentrated in the center, right? We mm-hmm. were building this very tall, skinny structure in the center. Right. Most of the rest of the board was open. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to think, oh, well, that's like worthless space now because the place to be is on top of this, you know, six or seven tall stack, right? right. But that's also the highest amount of competition, right? right? So if you start building, generally speaking, if that's happening, even if you're rolling bad die for yourself, right? Bad in the sense that you can't get on top of the stack, you're ro- you're you're placing a block somewhere, yeah. right? So can you find a way to use that block in a way that you get something down on the board? Because if you right. start building that infrastructure somewhere else, mm-hmm. other people are finally going to catch on and they're going to start using it, right. which means you're going to get bonus points, which means you're going to have more flexibility, which means you're going to be able to do more stuff and start building up and you're not fighting tooth and nail for every platform that you're trying to get down yeah. on the top most mm-hmm. level. So well, it also means that what you're targeting in terms of regions of the board is not as important to you. Right. Because right? if you think about it, you can be on, say, as long as you're on the same end of the board, you can be around one corner and then around the other side of that corner and then around the next corner and the other side of that one. And still be working on, say, the first two or, you know, four rows of squares to be building. Right. As long as you're on that wing of the board, like you can be working on that area and being more open to I'm just going to place where I can. I think it's valuable. Now, whether that's a winning strategy or not, I don't know. We would have to kind of prove that out. But it is a way to shake things up if you're playing this game and you start feeling stuck like that, I think. Yeah. True. I mean, it, it, it was interesting to see the different mindsets at the table where people were willing to do that on the sides, but there were at least two, if not three of the times where 
the incentive was very strong, just filled the center tower piece and Mm -hmm. very little Mm -hmm. went on around it. And you felt really kind of squeezed, I guess. And it was really highly competitive, but you you pulled down big points once you got something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to say the game that I was talking about with Ken, I think I won that game Mm -hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. Mm -hmm. And I got one small platform in the center up high which might have scored me like 21 points or something but then most of the rest i was building around the bottom because ken had put a bunch of blocks down and not done anything with them which was basically (laughs) just using up space so we were giving him a hard time about it and then finally he built a platform down there it was like awesome now now i just start building infrastructure on top of his and it kind of freed up that part of the board so yeah it can shift is i think what you're saying I, i think so so, all right. Well, some good thoughts here on both sides. Were there any other major points that you guys did not like about the game? And then we can probably move on to final thoughts. I think I'm ready. Yeah, I think I'm ready for final thoughts. All right. Well, hopefully we've given y'all enough to think about or given you at least a taste of what this game plays like. I think anybody who's experienced in board games will realize that this is the type of game that's probably going to be for some people, probably maybe not for others. Right. But I guess since I'm already talking, I'll just give my yeah, final Yeah, go thoughts, for it. Yeah. So as I've said, I'm not going to come out and say that this is a great, super deep strategic game. It's dice rolling. It's tower building. It's mean. It's take that. There are all those elements to it. I was pleasantly surprised by Casa Grande, though, to be honest. This was a game going way, way back to early, early episodes. I had talked about when we were doing the mining stuff, mining BGG. Mm -hmm. I had picked up a huge shipment of games from somebody on BGG, like big box Mm -hmm. of just random games. And this was one that I tacked on, hadn't heard of it. It came up in the mining efforts. I was like, sure, throw it in there. Didn't know anything about it. Did not expect it to be exciting in any way. But we played this on the gaming weekend a couple weeks ago. People seemed to enjoy it. I was pleasantly surprised by the amount of different things to think about. Mm -hmm. I think if you approach this game as a light and fast sort of tactical game where randomness is going to be a factor and sometimes you're going to get screwed, I think it can be an enjoyable puzzle. So for me right now, I'm giving this game a four. I enjoyed my plays of it. Yes, you can be frustrated about dice rolling not going particularly well. I think that's not going to be for some people. And so if you hear that and you're like, yeah, that doesn't sound good to me, I'd say give this one a pass. But for me, for now, it's a four. I could see this going either way, honestly, Mm -hmm. with more plays. But so far, I'm at a four. Okay, nice. Yeah, I enjoyed the game too, and I definitely played it again. I mean, it's one of those games that I think the rule set, even though it sounded like it may be hard, is pretty short. It's probably very easy to teach, but hard to master. For me, as I played it, going through the tactical part of it, I'm still thinking about, can I get better at it if I played it more? Because some of it is you're putting it out there, and there's just a lot of randomness that happens between you and your turn by the time you get it back. I did enjoy the abstract nature of the puzzles and uh, trying to figure out how I could get my pieces down and then doing my best to get in the mind of the other people at the table to see what they were going for. And I thought that part was pretty cool. So I'm going to settle on a four, too. I'd play it again. Sure. Cool. So for me in this game, I was definitely there as the guy to make sure that someone came in fourth place. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, you don't give yourself enough credit, Cameron. But uh, despite all my complaining, it didn't actually stop me from having fun. And it definitely wasn't the fault of the game. I found myself reflecting on my play of this and, and thinking like, oh, I really just didn't understand what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Once I kind of got it, I felt a lot more confident and comfortable and, and it really became uh, enjoyable for me. And I think combined with the fact that this game is, I think, visually impressive. I liked that whole like vertical thing that happens on this game. Yeah, I liked engaging with it and I had fun. So I would definitely play it again, and I'm also going to give it a four. Fours around the table. Fours around. Did not expect that. Yeah, solid. Good to hear. 
All right. Uh, I'd, I'd be very curious to get Chris's thoughts on this right, when he's back walk. on the episode next time. Because I, I know he has thoughts, and I'm sure they're legitimate thoughts. So I'd definitely be interested to get his rating. Mm-hmm. I think he only got a chance to play it once. So he would need to play it need to play it again, probably. Uh, it, but I would be surprised if you could get him to the table after, after <laughs> Yeah, I, Yeah, I don't know. After that first play, might not happen. But we'll mm-hmm. see. Maybe we can convince him. All right. So if this sounds interesting to you and you want to check it out, Noble Knight has several copies between $30 and $40. There are also six copies on BGG. Thanks. Cool. And that's our thoughts on Casa Grande. Cool. In prehistoric times, hunters caught game by following their footprints. In this game, players try to make tricks to get bear, wolf, wild boar, and mouflon cards. In the first three game turns, The number of tricks is predetermined. In the fourth and last game turn, each player must win as many tricks as possible. In addition to the basic game, there are two optional rules for a more challenging game. Exciting. Appreciate that. I could have left that last sentence out, but that's all right. (laughs) Trump tricks game. The last place that you would expect to find a David Attenborough impression. (laughs) Right. Love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Trump Tricks Game. This is a, I'm very intrigued by the name of this and how it came about. I'm guessing the game part of it is meant to play off of the, the, the big game hunting aspect of it. Mm. But uh, so this game was actually originally called Auf der Pirsch, probably mispronouncing that in German, but which means on the prowl. Which, in my mind, it's makes a much a, better name. Makes a heck of a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a much better like name. Trump right. Tricks Game, but that's what it's called in English. So, Trump Tricks Game was published in 2005 by Phalanx Games, designed again by Gunter Burkhart, ranked on BGG 5,671. So, actually, pretty darn close to Casa Grande, only off by 150 or so. All right, quick rules summary for Trump Tricks Game. Trump Tricks game is a trick-taking game, if you haven't figured that out yet, in which players attempt to track down and capture big game animals, bear, wolves, boar, and mouflon, which I had to look up what a mouflon was. The picture looked like an antelope, but when I looked it up, it made more sense. It is a bighorn sheep. It's actually native to Cyprus, oddly enough. The game is played with a deck of four suits. Each suit has numbers 1 through 12. The only unique thing about the deck is that in each suit, the 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 cards show footprint icons, 1, 2, 3, 2, 1, respectively, across 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. These footprints are important because they're part of the scoring, which we'll get to in a second. The game is played over four hands, 12 tricks in each hand. Trump suit is determined randomly at the start of the game using four cards, one showing each of the four suits, and these are laid out face up in a random order, which determines the suit for each of the four hands. And this is known to all players from the start of the game. The the trump for each of the four hands. Right. So in the first three hands of the game, players are attempting to capture cards with footprints on them, and they will score their total number of footprints captured times the number of different suits for which they have collected at least one footprint. So for example, if I have five footprints on all of the cards that I captured in a given hand, and those footprints are on three different suits, I would get five times three 
points, 15 victory points for that hand. A very important note, however, about these first three hands is that, remember how I mentioned the trump suit is known to everyone in advance? You might be thinking, why is it important that I know the trump suit for all of the hands in advance? Well, the cards that a player captures in each hand are the cards they will play with in the following hand. This is very important. Crazy. This also means, however, that once a player has captured enough tricks to have 12 cards, they can no longer catch tricks for that hand. So you will still play a card to the remaining tricks, but these cards do not count towards assessing the winner of that trick. It's just an extra card that gets thrown in. In the fourth and final hand, everything changes. So we transition from tracking the animals down by their footprints to actually trying to capture or kill these animals. Players in this fourth hand can capture as many tricks as they are able, and footprints don't matter at all. Instead, each card captured has a value between one and four victory points, and the value is the set order where the bear cards are always worth four points, boar are three, mouflon are two, and the wolves are one. After the fourth hand, players total their victory points, and the most victory points wins. So that is more or less how you play Trump <laughs> Tricks game. So I feel like for this one, we have to talk about this idea of the first three hands. Well, I mean, I guess it's every hand. The cards that you captured in the previous hand are the cards that you use for that next hand. So this obviously gets us into the territory of control. And do we feel like this game affords you a reasonable amount of control over how you structure your hand for the next hand? So what did you guys think about that? I will say I found it very difficult in the first three rounds to really look forward to the next round because I was so totally focused on getting footprints mm. and getting all the four different suits so that I could get the multiplier. I was very points focused. I do find it super fascinating the the tricks that you take or the hand that you get next time. And that did play into some decisions sometimes, but Part of the wrinkle to all of this is since you're really looking for tracks, sometimes getting the highest card is not what you want, especially oh, yeah. given that you're only going to get a certain number of tricks. So oftentimes you, you really don't want to, to pull in a trick that you don't absolutely want. So for me, planning that out was super difficult. So I just kind of focused on the points, but uh, I think it's, I don't know. It's a really kind of interesting concept for a, for a card game. Yeah. yeah. To kind of expand on what you were saying a little bit. For example, if you catch cards in such a way that you, in a particular suit, you only have a high card, then if that suit is led, you're taking that trick and right. you probably don't want that trick. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. It had a lot of slough off vibes. Yeah. Exactly. Throughout. There's, there's a really difficult thing like going on in this game. It's just so different than other trick takers because in other trick takers, you can sort of arrive at what the convention is for how to lead. And this one, it's really not clear. You don't want the lead. You don't want the lead and it changes from turn to turn. And the limitation factor on how many tricks you're allowed to take anyone who's played a trick taker knows sometimes you can't control whether or not you're taking tricks. If you just happen to have a bunch of high cards, Mm -hmm. you may not be able to avoid it. Yep. And that can really mess you up when you have to play with the cards that you get in the next hand. Right. Yeah, I found it interesting that the footprints in the first three rounds are on the middling numbers, right? They're not right. the high numbers. They're not the low numbers. They're in the middle, which I feel like makes it really tricky to figure out how to capture those. 
in any kind of controlled fashion. Like if you're leading a high card, people are just going to throw crap in there mm-hmm. and you're not going to get any footprints. If you lead a low card, that leaves the door wide open for somebody to take the trick with a footprint card, like with the seven, which is the three footprints, if everybody else is throwing low. And if you lead with footprints, somebody's just going to throw high over you. So it made a very interesting dynamic, which then takes us into like slough off territory where it's like, well, do you really have control then? over that or it's really kind of like a catch-22 of what do i throw here because i'm gonna get not what i want probably either way unless i get lucky Mm -hmm. with what other people have in their hand yeah choosing if you can choosing which tricks you want to take is i think the most important decision that you can make in this game and Mm -hmm. it's one that i failed at so many (laughs) times (laughs) well so it's funny the emotional spaces are i went through are because the first game, I I really I won and I won by a lot, and I was walking away thinking you won oh, like yeah. 180 to 60. <laughs> right? It was it was it was really lopsided, and it made us all start thinking about: Is there a snowballing mechanism when you have good cards at the beginning? Does it play out for the rest of them? And of course, I walked away thinking I'm this genius strategist. <laughs> right? And it's like, yeah, oh yeah, this is all about strategy. But then I, we played it again, played with Ken, and Ken had the same sort of thing. I think he beat, beat us by 40 or 50 points. And I don't feel like I changed my strategy that much. You're trying to but, say Ken might not be a brilliant No, no, he's, he could be that much more head and shoulders above me. I don't <laughs> know where that puts you guys. He was a self-admitted <laughs> trick-taking game novice, though. Yeah. To be fair, right? Right. Well, Had, I think, hasn't played many trick-taking games. Although yet, he he was also attempting to perform the perfect knowledge card counting that you, if you're that good at counting cards, like conceivably you could just master this game because yeah. all of the cards are visible by the second round. Who has what? Right. Which is, I mean, to me, it's hard enough because I will try to count cards in the round that I'm playing now, but to actually have that second layer of memory banks where you can say, okay, now these are all the tricks that yeah. everybody has taken during all of that to apply it to the next round would just it's be hard to sit there and crazy. go, okay, well, I know Bill has a lot of yellow right. when it's the following round. I mean, even just that level of resolution is difficult to right? Like, oh, Jason's got a lot of green, but Bill has a lot of yellow. Like, I, I couldn't even do that. I, yeah. I did try to pay a little bit of attention to who had a lot of the next trumps, but mm. half the time I've kind of forgot that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so I guess that naturally takes us to the last phase of the game, literally the last phase of the mm-hmm. game, right? So in the fourth hand, everything transitions, right? We're no longer going after footprints, and now, and we're not restricted to the number of tricks you can take. It's a free-for-all. Mm-hmm. Now you just want cards, right. and the cards have varying values. How did you guys find that switch over to be? So for me, I, I felt that it, in this game, it was a lot like the first three rounds I had been holding my breath. And now finally I can like mm-hmm. start breathing again because the first three rounds of this game don't feel like a trick-taking game. Not really. And the final round does feel like a trick-taking game. Like you're motivated the way that you normally would be in yep. a trick-taker. I really loved it. I, I, I do want to talk about one other dynamic that is related to the fact that everybody has a certain number of tricks that they hold, because I think there's a kind of a psychological element that you hold on to the track cards in your hand at the end, because you just don't want to give them away to people. Mm. And one strategy is to get people 
to take tricks and then if everybody has completed their full books, like if everybody at the table has four tricks already, you just get what's in everybody else's hands without without playing it. And oftentimes they'll have, you know, lots of tracks in it because that's just human nature, I guess, as people hold on to it. But the other thing in the last hand, and, and Ken did this to a really good effect, and I think I did it as well in the one that I won by a lot, is to pay attention to with the trumps that are out. And if you see that people aren't playing trumps, I think he pulled in like, I don't know, five or six trumps in the very last hand because he was able to slough off and the rest of us completed our books and he just collected mm, all these mm-hmm. cards at the very end. It's hard to talk about that last hand without talking how the third hand transitions and strategy <laughs> to mm-hmm. set yourself up and you may sacrifice your tracks at that mm-hmm. point in time so you can be super successful in the to last really one. try to pick up what is the color that's going to be because there are a lot of points to be had in that last round if you can pick up the, the four pointers mm-hmm. oh for sure you tend to think the first three rounds of like oh well the footprints are just kind of a sideshow leading up to the final round but the footprints are almost more valuable than mm-hmm. the final round the final round you can definitely rake it in but there, there's not like a single hand in this game that you can you slack on. Yeah. Right. If you're not well, in the running in the last hand or in the third hand, I mean, you've got to be within, what, 30 points maybe right. <laughs> if you're not mm-hmm. that close. I think I felt like I fell behind playing this one because what I was experiencing is that I was going for the footprints, but I was only getting, say, two different colors of footprint cards. And you need to, to try to get three or four so that you're getting that multiplier in there that can make a huge difference i think the last game that we played i i was getting like 12 points in a round and you guys were consistently getting like 25 yeah i mean bill was scoring like 52 some points in a single hand if you can get four different colors like your multiplier is high yeah yeah it's it can be all right well let's talk about and we've kind of been back and forth on a lot of different things but anything else in particular that stood out to you that you didn't like about the game? I think I was definitely trying to make this game something that it actually isn't. It's like this game is trick taker adjacent, Mm -hmm. but because it doesn't follow the typical format, it's a brain breaker because your brain, if you're used to this type of game, like wants to, you know, take every trick if you can, wants to lead cards the way that you normally would. And you just can't do that in this game. And Maybe that's a con, but maybe it's really a really subjective con because I just like I wanted this game to be different. Yeah, obviously you're playing tricks, so you are playing it like a trick taker. It's just a different mindset of trick taker. Goals are completely yeah. Different. You're playing like slough off, basically. Like I guess deliberately trying to not take certain tricks. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm ready for final thoughts. Yeah, I bet you guys into final thoughts. Yeah. All right. Well, Cameron, you want to kick us off this time? Yeah, I can do that. So I think at this point. And I've more or less said this, like I'm pretty much spoiled by all the other trick taking games that I've played. And I think if I'm in a setting with a group that wants to play cards, I'd rather just play one of those, one of those other games, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's Haggis or Teach You or, or, or one of those. So I, I don't think this is a bad game, but I didn't really enjoy it. Just that that mind bending, like it being so different. I, I didn't enjoy that. You know, if I ask myself, do I want to play it again? I actually kind of do, but mainly because I, I feel like I underperformed <laughs> and that I, I want to try to see if I can 
sorted out in my brain and, and do better. So yeah. I, and I don't want to put all the blame of my feelings about this on the game because I feel like I said, my biggest issue was that I was not properly oriented to this game. I wanted it to be something that it just isn't. But I mean, like I, it feels like it's possible to make good decisions and not just like, hope to get lucky. So I don't know. All that's to say I feel very three-ish on it mm-hmm. right yeah. now. That could maybe improve if I play it a bit more, but I'm at a three right now. Okay. All right. So I have mixed emotions about this one as well. I mean, I, I feel like this one a whole lot like I felt about you know, The Ghost of Christmas because I really wanted to love that game. And I do just love being in this group where we can try all these different trick takers that have these super creative ways to do things. And I feel like this one um, where you were keeping your booked tricks that you took for the next hand was a cool way to do it because you did have visibility into what you were going to play the next round and it kind of gives you an illusion of control, but there's a strong goal about what you need this round. It was hard to balance that, which you wanted for the next one. However, with all that said, it felt really good to, you know, fill other people's books up when they didn't want to, so you could get things mm-hmm. later. And so I, I really like that aspect of the game. So I'm pretty torn about the strategy because sometimes it, there was a, this is how the cards just Fell, and I wasn't in any real super control over it. Mm. So I, you know, I think I'm going to give it a, a three, two, but I think it's very much in that same category of the ghost of Christmas for me. And that with more plays, it might be four because I think there's probably some other, other things I can learn about it as I play. But mm-hmm. I think if, if you like trick takers, I highly suggest playing it just because it's to me very unique, man. Uh, I feel like between the two of y'all, you summed my thoughts up nearly perfectly. <laughs> so I don't think there's a ton that I have to add to that. I mentioned it a couple times throughout the review that I got very strong slough off vibes from this game, both in the way that it plays, but also just kind of in the randomness factor that we talked about with slough off, where it can just be that you just get dealt cards that are like if somebody is low on a particular suit and you picked up a bunch of chips for that suit, you're going to be in trouble. Right. And it felt very similar. I'm also trying in a lot of situations to not take certain tricks because I, I want to control which particular tricks I take. Mm-hmm. So all that to say, I gave Slough off a four despite all of that because right. it was a fun game and I enjoyed exploring it and playing it. With this one, like you guys said, I think on the merits of its ideas and what it puts forward as a game, I think it's worth trying. And that carrying cards over from hand to hand switching the whole scoring mechanism for the final round like is all very interesting to me and I enjoy the puzzle of it. But for me, if I'm thinking about this and comparing it to something like Slough Off that I gave a four, I'm like, if if it was between those two games on a game night, which one would I rather play? Mm. I'd rather play Slough Off. I think that's a really fair way to compare it, right? Like I compared it to Haggis, which like isn't fair, right? Because it's one of my favorite yeah. games. Comparing it to Slough Off, which I think is great, because too, because that was just last episode. Right, right. I think more apt. Yeah. Both games, I think, suffer from that randomness factor of like where you could just get dealt a really poor hand or you could feel like a bunch of points fell to somebody in a particular hand and they didn't really do much to control that. It just Mm. sort of happened. If that's going to be in both of these games, I'd still rather play Slough Off. That was a really long way of saying that my thoughts are the same as y'all's. (laughs) <laughs> but I also give this game a three. I think it, it's so close to a four because the mechanism and the thinking behind it is really great. I think if you're the type of person who 
can count cards and can do more of that perfect information side of the game, this could be a really intriguing game mm-hmm. for somebody like that. I don't have that capacity, <laughs> right? <laughs> I can barely remember whether the Phoenix and the Dragon have been played when I'm playing <laughs> Teach You. So, but if you like that perfect information type thing, this is perfect information for yeah. four hands in a row. Like you could know exactly what cards everyone else is holding and then play that puzzle. And that would be really fun, I think, if you were able to do that. But your average trick taker is not going to be able to do that. So I'm rambling at this point. It's a three from me. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> no problem. I'm here for you. So we'll Thanks. move on. That's all right. We'll, we'll, edit. we'll edit you out. <laughs> All right. We'll stop it. I agree with Bill and Cameron. (laughs) (laughs) Three. (laughs) We got to leave all that in now. That's funny. All right. Well, uh, for those that want to follow our glowing reviews of this game and give it a shot. Although I I agree. I think folks should try it out. So where could they find it? Yeah. So Noble Knight, again, our friends over at Noble Knight have two copies. Coming through. For as low as $13. So not too bad. There are also six copies on BGG. However, all but a few of those are the German edition. So I think this game is pretty language independent. There's, I mean, there's words on the cards, but it's just like the names of the animals. And I think they're in Latin anyway. So should be playable even in the German format for our English speaking friends. But yeah. Okay. Very cool. Well, those are our thoughts on Trump Tricks Game or the better title. On the Prowl. The Dutch Republic urgently needs new cultivation areas in order to harvest more crops. By means of splendid mills, they want to wrest more and more land from the sea. Players assume the role of wealthy Dutch merchants and invest in land reclamation at the gates of the town. In order to make proper use of seeds and building timber, you have to proceed tactically on the market without losing sight of the most fertile fields on the game board. Was that John Cleese? Uh, you're, you're done already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, John Cleese. That's, we'll go with that. Yeah, that was like, I love that. <laughs> All right. No, thanks. We've already got one. Sorry, <laughs> All right. I would like to apply for a silly walk. <laughs> Sealand. Published in 2010 by Ravensburger. Designed by Gunter Burkhart, along with Wolfgang Kramer. This game is currently ranked on BGG 1,802. So pretty low in comparison to the other two. Is that low or is that high? You know. The number's low. The number's low. The ranking would be high. Well, you know, it's both. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. In Sealand, players are navigating a double rondelle to choose numbered crop and windmill tiles, placing these onto the board in order to hopefully harvest them as crops into points. So the board shows a portion of the Dutch lowlands as a large hex grid that's walled off by a dike. The top left corner of the board shows a large circular town which acts as the rondelle. And there are two different rings to this rondelle. The inner ring is made up of market spaces where tiles from one of two shuffled stacks of hexes are placed. These are seed hexes and windmill blueprint hexes. Around this ring, a single large pawn is moved by each player, uh, some number of spaces, and the player collects whichever tile it happens to land on. The outer ring is made up of the town's buildings, where each building has a large spot for a circular coin. Five of these circles in a row start the game with coins, whereas the rest are empty. 
and each player has a smaller pawn, which begins the game on the rearward most coin in this line in a clockwise direction. So that's kind of a strange description, but I'll explain more about why that's important in a second. On a player's turn, they're going to move the large pawn on the inner ring to a new market stall and pick up a tile. Then they will place that tile onto the board. And finally, if they are able to, they will harvest tiles from around one of their windmills. And I'll explain how all of that works right now. So moving the large pawn around the rondelle. The first space that the pawn moves is always free. Any additional space that a player wants to move around the rondelle costs one coin. Now, these coins are not coins that are in front of a player. They are the coins around the outer ring. So for each coin spent, player has to move their pawn forward one coin on this outer ring. And obviously, if you reach the front of the, I think of it like the, the old snake game, you know, where you're moving the snake and every time you eat a little dot, the snake gets longer. Mm -hmm. Except the snake never gets longer in this game. It's always five coins. But if you reach the front of the snake, you can't skip spaces anymore on the inner rondelle, basically. But what happens is that as soon as the coins in the back of the row have been completely vacated by players, those coins get picked up and get moved to the front of the row. So it's like a moving conveyor belt, mm -hmm. hence the snake reference. All right, so that's the rondelle portion of the game. And again, the tiles that you're picking up are either seed tiles, which when they get flipped over become crops, or their windmill blueprint tiles, which get flipped over and become windmills. So what are we doing with all these tiles? I mentioned there's a hex grid. Each player will start with one windmill on the board. Each player has four wind meeples, I guess is what we're going to go with. Wooden windmills. So windmill leeples. Wind, wind meeples. Like it? Wind meeples. <laughs> wind meeples. Yeah. Windmill meeples that they will place on the board. When a seed tile is taken, it's flipped over, it becomes a crop tile, and it must be placed anywhere around a windmill belonging to the player who's placing the tile. If a player takes a windmill blueprint tile, they flip it over, it becomes a windmill construction space, and they can place that anywhere on the board as long as it's connected to an existing tile. When you place a windmill tile, you have the option to place one of your actual wind meeples onto that tile, and it becomes a real windmill. Each of the tiles, whether it's a windmill tile or a crop tile, has a number printed on it. These numbers range between 0 and 7, and this is how the scoring occurs. As soon as a windmill has been completely encircled by tiles, it scores. It's harvested. So the player will score points equal to all of the numbers on the tile that the windmill was on, as well as all of the tiles around that windmill that are crops. Now there's one additional wrinkle to this in that there are three different types of crops. There's cabbage and tulips, tulips and rapeseed or canola, I think is a different name for it. These are red, green, and yellow. And if a player's windmill, when they do the harvest, is surrounded by two of those different types, they score the standard number of points. If they have all three types, they gain an additional five-point bonus. However, if they only have one type of crop around their windmill, they score nothing for that windmill. That's a very important detail. Uh, that is pretty much it. There are a few other minor details that I'm not going to go into that we'll probably cover as we talk about the game. The game ends more or less once one of the stacks of hex tiles runs out. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's essentially what happens. One important note about this, though, is that the game ends immediately. So any windmills that are still on the board that have not been yet harvested do not score. 
And at that point, most victory points wins the game. So that was a slightly slimmed down version of the rules to this game. And there are a few variants and other things that we'll talk about as we go through. But I feel like the most unique thing about this game is this double rondelle system. Mm -hmm. So what did you guys think about that? Did you find it interesting? How did it go? Yeah, I definitely thought it was an interesting game mechanism. What I thought was was really interesting about it is that, and it seems like this is a, a thing that Gunther Burkhart likes to do is to provide some randomness, but offset the randomness with this element of flexibility, right? So we saw that in, in Casa Grande where, yeah, you're rolling a die, but you're managing the bonus track. Yep. the bonus points track. And and here, yeah, you're flipping over a random tile mm -hmm. and that may create a better path for you or a worse path for you, but you can mitigate that by spending however many coins you would like to in, in front of you. Right. I thought that was a pretty clever way to handle that. Right, right. On the outer track, there every person has a pawn that they're moving around. On the inner track, there's only one pawn that's for the resources. I don't know if that if you said that really clearly but it was interesting that the outer track with everybody's pawns is on the coins and that ended up really affecting what resources you had a choice of at the end i thought it was a pretty creative kind of game mechanism yeah i liked the mix on the rondelle of the windmill tiles versus the crop tiles yeah mm -hmm. so not only are you moving around the rondelle but you're also deciding was well, it more worth it right now for me to grab another windmill to get another windmill out on the board Right. Or is it more worth it for me to grab that big crop tile number that's out there mm -hmm. or maybe grab the one that I need the last color to complete my mm -hmm. set of three colors? The coins around the outside were also interesting to me. I'll talk a little bit more about those in a bit, but it was definitely unique having the double system, how it, how it snakes around. And you're taking that risk, right? If you jump out in front and then mm -hmm. somebody plays slowly, like Bill, plays from the back <laughs> of the line and, and just like takes the free, right? Like if you take the free tile every time, you're not moving at all on right. that back track, right? Mm -hmm. And so it could be stuck in that situation for yeah. a while where now, you know, Cameron is now strapped at the front of the line, also taking whatever happens to be next. So, And, and that's, I mean, I don't know if you want to go there just yet, but that that is where I think despite the flexibility mechanism, the game can maybe sour a little bit yeah go there well but it's, i mean it's a it's another player strategy right because the other player who's not moving is is purposefully jamming your vibes and i that. think that's valid i think that you can say that the player playing back because the player that was playing back in mm. the most recent memory was you and i think that <laughs> yeah. it was well done however what i mean is if you're able to get by let's say playing mm. that strategy that mm. means that whatever happens to be in front of you at the moment is good right. enough right Right. If you're in the front, it's mm -hmm. probable that the reason that you're in the front is because what was directly in front of you on your freebie move was probably junk mm -hmm. and you and you didn't want it. So you kept spending your money. The next time you comes around, you didn't want what was directly in front of you or it was the minus three. Right. Multiple turns. And you kept having to spend ahead. And so it's possible to to get into a situation where maybe even despite reservations about moving too far ahead, what's in front of you can just not be great. Right. Yep. All right. Well, let's talk about what else did you like about this game? We haven't really talked about the tile placement yet. Yeah. I'm sure we'll circle back to some of these cons sure. in, in a minute. But anything else about that rondelle mechanic or what about the tile placement? What did you guys think about that? Well, one feature that it has that I think plays really well in the rondelle was the, the free turn tile that's out there. 
the extra turn tiles. Oh, the, the, oh, farm, the farms. The, farm, the, farms. the, farms. the yeah, farms. Yeah, the farms. Yeah. I exactly. totally did not mention the farms. There's a farm tile that will give you a coin that will allow you to take an immediate turn after your current turn. And yeah. So those farm tiles are only on the board, though. So right. That they never appear on the rondelle, but they're seated throughout the board, either randomly face down, where you don't see them until you place a windmill next to them. Right. Or they're face up, depending on which version of the game you play. Which, yeah, but they're they're worth zero points, mm-hmm. but they give you that coin with an with an extra turn. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and having one of those in your back pocket on the rondelle or, or two or whatever is is huge. And it, it it made a great moment of deciding what's most efficient, what's going to play out best in the long run. Yeah, I think the other thing to, to talk about in terms of the tile placement is the incentive that the game gives you to plant diverse crops around your windmills, particularly because there's a danger of not just not getting five bonus points, although that's desirable, but getting stuck maybe, or maybe someone sticking you with only one type of crop and then your efforts there amounting to nothing ultimately. Yeah. You can lay tiles down at least windmill tiles you can lay windmill tiles down wherever you want so i can Mm -hmm. even if i don't plan to put my own windmill on it i can lay a windmill tile down around yours which essentially nukes one of the positions around your windmill Mm -hmm. right because you don't score the points for other people's windmill tiles the crop tiles are a little trickier in that crop tiles have to go next to your own windmills Mm -hmm. so in order to place a zero value crop tile or a crop tile that's the wrong color that's not helping an opponent it also has to be next to you, right? which has its own trade-offs. I guess I'll come back to that too. I guess I have a lot of thoughts on the, uh, on the opposite side of this discussion that we'll yeah. come back to. Okay. But I did find that interesting at the outset of like, oh, well, there's this opportunity now that I have to place tiles around other people's windmills and affect what they're able to score and when they're able to score. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, I like that as well. And if we hadn't said it already, you, you do share resources if you both have a windmill next to the same resource. So, yep. so that that plays into this a lot as well. The other, you know, point in strategy that I liked was thinking about you've only got four four weeples, meeples, windmills to, to place out, and there's the the idea that you want to get the most per windmill that I was that I kind of started out with because I was thinking let me. Find the place where I can put the most resources around it. But I found the more I played it, that often I was looking for a place that I could score it quickly. It may not have necessarily been the maximum points, but it had the fewer other tiles I needed to place before I got that windmill back in mm-hmm. hand so I could place it out there again. So it was it's kind of cool trying to, to navigate which one was going to be the most efficient, you know, gaining of points and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you can place a tile out and immediately harvest that windmill and get it right. right back again, even if it's, you know, seven, eight points. That's not a bad play. Right. right. All right. Well, anything else? So the, we played two different versions of this. We played one that was kind of the simplified version that was easy to play, easy to learn. I like mm-hmm. that. But the second time we played, we played the variant that had governors that were out there that I thought were were pretty cool. And the, and the governor aspect of it, tied into the rondelle that mm-hmm. whenever you scored your windmill there was a number on the rondelle that your governor needed to be higher than for you to get an extra five points otherwise you got minus five points and yeah. that kind of added a little extra dimension on the strategy of all of it mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I really liked that a lot what did you guys think of it 
Yeah. So the rule book has a couple additional things. So the, the board is double-sided. The normal game, the base game has the, the randomized tiles that include the farms and things are on the board. They're islands and they're upside down. So you don't know what they are until you place next to them. On the reverse side of the board, everything is pre-printed. So you see everything that's there. You know mm-hmm. every tile that's pre-printed on the board. is Which is the advanced version. Right? The advanced version, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's records and governors. Bill, Bill talked about the governors. Basically, like when you, when you take your harvest, if you have a governor as part of that windmill, which there's a couple seated throughout the board, if you have one of those, you get that bonus plus or minus five points based on whether your harvest value meets or exceeds a particular number. And then there was records, which is every player has two tiles that when you do a harvest, if it's a big one, like you score a lot of points off of it, you can place your tile out on the, out on the scoring track at the number that you scored for that particular harvest. And then the top four harvests at the end of the game score extra points. So yeah, we played it both ways. We played it with all of the variants added in and the opposite side of the board. And we played it with the the kind of beginner rules. I definitely think it it adds in a couple more things to think about. I don't know if I'm sold on them being especially useful in terms of like really changing the gameplay a ton. Mm-hmm. But what did you think, Cameron? Yeah, I don't think the extras or whatever we're calling them made that big of a difference. I I do think that the revealed spaces on the board, the advanced side of the board, I guess, was much more challenging than the uh, than the original side of the board. Mm-hmm. I will say that it can make for a much more strategic game, but it also does make for a much more difficult game. The, the knowing where the farms are in particular makes a really big difference in the sense that mm-hmm. you almost need to target them. I, I think getting those farm tokens is the extra pretty yeah, or the extra turns. It's pretty valuable yeah. in this game because I think, like I mentioned about the flexibility with the moving flexibility in this game is pretty important and being able Mm -hmm. to, to seize on an opportunity to take an additional turn is, I would just about say crucial that if, if you find yourself in a position where you are not able to control your destiny by utilizing those two different forms of flexibility, you're not going to do well. And I learned Mm -hmm. that the hard way. Yeah. No, it was it was really interesting to me that the governors didn't have that big of an impact. I felt like it changed my gameplay when I had some windmills that had a governor on it to make sure I got the extra five points versus the minus five because a ten point swing is is pretty big in this game. But well, I say it's pretty big. I think Ken won that game, and I think he won it by. 30? Yeah, <laughs> something like that. I was going to say, is it big in a game yeah. where you're scoring over 200 points? Right, that's true, because that's not subtracting from him. It's just for me. So, yeah, it really didn't have that big of an outcome in it. And so it would be interesting to see in following plays if I would just kind of ignore the fact that I'm going to lose five points because it just doesn't have that big of an impact at the, by the end of the game. So right. and just, just complete it and get it back. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's... What were your huh. thoughts? Well, so man, I this was a, an interesting review for me to write down because when we played the game, I enjoyed playing it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a light and fluffy euro, right? Mm-hmm. The more I started writing down my notes for this episode, the more I started to realize that every single thing I was writing down was a con. <laughs> and so that's why I kept kind of deferring to this section and it's I this is not what I expected my review to be when I 
started writing this, but I guess my overall thought, and maybe this is jumping into final thoughts, but I'll, I'll explain. It felt like the game was selling itself as having all this tension, right? This double rondelle, like, am I going to be able to do what I need to do? Am I going to be able to grab the tile that I need to grab? Which tile should I grab? I don't know. And then once I have my tile, I can like, oh, do I like expand this direction or that direction? Or do I place it on somebody else's location to try to mess up their plans? But as I was playing it, it kind of felt obvious to me what to do. Like all, I never felt like I couldn't do what I needed to do on the rondelle. My choices of what tile to take on the rondelle was always pretty obvious. It's like whatever the biggest number is that's out there, grab that tile, right? Because otherwise somebody else is going to. Mm-hmm. Where to place the tile was usually pretty obvious, right? It's like place it in whichever of my windmills needs that color and will score the most the most quickly, right? Yeah. Or place a windmill. Or if place a windmill to get another one out on the board, default, right? Yeah. Ladies and, then, and gentlemen, the part of Chris is being played by Jason tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I, I was looking for that tension in the game and everywhere I was looking for it, I wasn't finding it. I think the the one place where it does exist a little bit is at least in the side of the board where you can see the farms, like you mentioned, Cameron, like getting out there and getting those extra turns. That's a big deal because it mm-hmm. makes a big difference in terms of like if you can jump across the rondelle and grab two of the good tiles that are out there, like right. when they're probably the only two good tiles on the rondelle right now, like that's huge because it just yeah. nukes everybody else's turn for a little while. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Even the the tile placement, like it's it sells it as, well, I can place tiles around other people's things to mess them up. You can only do that in one of two circumstances. Either I'm placing a windmill tile down to mess you up, which is kind of a wasted we turn did. for me. Yeah. Right? We did that, but it's kind of a wasted turn for me, right? If if I'm purely placing a windmill just to block a space for you, right? Like, sure, I can put I can put my windmill on it. Yeah, well, yeah, sure, I can put my windmill on there also, right? But I'm also placing a windmill down on a spot where I've nuked one of the spots that I'm able to score from. So I've I've slowed you down by one hex, but I've slowed myself down by one hex at least. I think depending on what else is around there. Incentivized to do that. And it kind of depends on whether or not you're playing with some of the expansions. Yeah. Because the, those were incentivizing. I mean, that game, everyone was targeting. How do I get 25 or 30 points out of every single windmill? Right. Mm-hmm. But if you're not doing that and you're, mo- you're mostly just saying, how do I score as many points as I can plopping your windmill down where you've only got to add one more garden space is never a bad thing to do. Even if you're going to score four or five fewer points, right? Yeah, I guess the question is, could you have done something better for yourself elsewhere on the board by just focusing on your own stuff? I mean, I guess that is a trade-off at times. It felt less tense than I wanted it to be, I guess, though. And then the same thing with the crop tiles, right? There are zero-value crop tiles. You could place a zero-value crop tile on somebody and nuke one of their spots, but crop tiles have to go next to your own windmills. So if I'm placing a zero-value crop tile on Cameron, I'm also placing it on myself. Right. So it's it, it felt like still, that's still offset. Like I said, if you're not worrying about every single windmill scoring the maximum number of points, it could be the difference between you scoring with having two different types of crops or getting that third one and getting the bonus. So like I would put a zero on one of my spaces if it was unlikely that I was going to be able to get a third different type of crop. And let's say I got the zero for free. Do you see what I mean? Like if you take some of yeah, the yeah. some of the additional elements out of the game 
I don't know, your decisions can change. Now, maybe I'm just settling for fewer points and that's why I lose all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there is some nuance there. I'm not going to say there's no strategy to it. There are definitely some decisions to be made. I guess what I was looking for in the game was this like agonizing tension Mm -hmm. of where am I going and how am I moving around the rondelle and I didn't find it. And then... And then it was like, okay, well, now we have the advanced board. Let's do the advanced board, flip it over. Now all the information is out there. You can see where you're going. And that did add a little bit to it because you can plan ahead. It's not just a random draw of when I place yeah. a windmill down. What am I going to get? I don't know. But it's also a static board that's the same every time. Right. right? Mm. So I don't know how much, how much distance that would have. The records and the governors, I'm also a little bit torn on those. The records kind of felt like a rich gets richer mechanism. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basically, the top four records score 20, 15, 10, and 5 points, respectively, right? But if you manage to get the highest record to get that 20 points, you already got a ton of points by scoring (laughs) it, right? Right. So it's whoever scores the most points gets the most points. You score that many points. Yeah. And it also became like, it's. I think it was supposed to be this dynamic of, okay, well, when do I put my record tiles out? I only have two of them. I got to make the right decision. I have to put it out on the right number. If I go too low, you know, I might not get the top spot. The number is 32, right? 32 (laughs) is the number. If you get 32, you put your marker out. If you don't get 32, don't put your marker out, right? Or if you're not close to 32, that was the number, right? Like the numbers, the numbers around the tiles are zero to seven. The average that we were seeing as we were playing was 32, right? Now that might fluctuate slightly, you know, in different There's groups really and different only plays, so but much that you can do. Yeah, I mean, once you actually add in the three crop bonus and the other governor bonus doesn't apply, which doesn't, doesn't even count. Apply. Yeah. So yeah, so there's only so much flexibility in what that ideal number can be, and so it felt like once you figure out what that number is, that's the number. And there's no decision point at that at mm. that point. The governors added some tension, I will say, just in terms of like, do you place around a windmill that has a governor? Or do you not? Do you avoid them? If you can collect enough of them, you get an extra bonus at the end of the game. Then there's the timing element. I don't know. It just felt like I wanted there to be tension. I wanted there to to be full of tension. And it wasn't. And maybe that's okay. Like I read some of the reviews on BGG and it was talking about how this is kind of a lighter family oriented Euro game. And I can see that being appealing, right? Mm -hmm. It is lighter and it felt fun. There's like fun crops and windmills and things and you're putting wind me wind meeples out on the board and like placing tiles and doing the cool rondelle thing and like it's all fun i just don't know how many more times i would want to play it mm-hmm. without it really grabbing me from right. a tension perspective mm. so were those that was your a really, final thoughts <laughs> oh, i was gonna say you wanted to give each <laughs> final those were my like... final thoughts pretty much yeah okay. i was I wanted to like this one, mm-hmm. but honestly, after I wrote everything down, I was torn between a two and a three. Ooh, wow. I'm giving it a three because I don't think it's necessarily a bad game. I think mm-hmm. that people who are not looking for a super deep, agonizing, masochistic, as Chris likes to put it, experience right. would probably enjoy this. Like I would play this with my kids. They would probably enjoy it. They would have fun. And there's enough to think about there right? that it, you know, it's not, it's not nothing. It just wasn't what I was looking for. Mm. And so I, for me, I settled on a three for it. Okay. Right. So I'll go next because I, I think it's so interesting to listen to your thoughts. And then I think reflecting on like, you know, we've obviously we're about to do our 50th episode next time. And we've mm. done a lot of game reviews and we've, I think, gotten familiar with what each other 
are expecting from games. And I think I've learned a lot about what I'm expecting from games when I go to play, especially, I mean, like I've hinted at it, but like I got literally crushed at every single one of these games, every (laughs) single time that we played, I was in dead last by a lot. I mean, at one point I was like, I think in, in one of our plays of this game, I, there were, you could count three corners around the board between where I landed and where the next person on in third place was. I got absolutely obliterated in this game. However, I think that what I've, what I've found is that what, you know, maybe like you and Chris, I think tend to drift toward and maybe even you too, Bill, like is, is that mind crushing? Like I want to feel pain type of thing. Mm -hmm. And that what I'm looking for is something that's a little more lighthearted, a little bit more like conversational, right? Mm -hmm. I play games recreationally because it's a great way to, I think, spend time with my friends and time with my family. It's very, it's very social and look at my work. Like I'm clearly into doing things that are difficult to, to sort of think about and and that sort of thing. And I don't have a hard time doing that, but I don't enjoy it. I I think nearly as much when, you know, I've got eight, every game that we play is like an absolute brain burner. Right. So what I found is that I actually generally enjoyed this one. I think it is kind of possible to make sort of game altering missteps in this one. If you reach out too far in front of you using your coins and someone's playing that slow game, you're screwed. You can't, you can't, you have no, no flexibility. Cameron speaks from experience. Oh yes. I mean, it's possible to just get unlucky and that sucks. I think if you're playing with a group of people who are also just there to kind of have fun, you probably won't have that gut wrenching of an experience and that big of a blowout. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is despite my bad experience with this one, I actually think that it's a decent game and I, I did have fun with it at least the first time that I played it when I didn't just get crumpled up into a, a piece of paper thrown into the wastebasket. I am going to give it a four. And I think that, like I said, a lot of that lends itself mostly because my general frame of reference for, mm-hmm. for what I find enjoyable is just mm-hmm. very different right. than, than what some other gamers are looking for. So like, I think what you're looking for really does play a lot into how you come away from a game like this. Oh, for right. sure. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I, res- I respect that. I'm glad you gave it a four. Yeah, yeah. I generally try to ask myself, is there a situation where this game can shine? And is there a demographic, a set of people, like you're saying, mm. that, that don't have to have the latest, most complicated Euro game that they can enjoy it? And I think you both said this, that this has that group that could do it. For me, I, I did get the sense that this one could feel a little samey over time. Mm. The, the rondels were cool, but they just didn't feel like that added a whole lot to the genre it wasn't enough of a kind of a hook i did like the tile laying mechanisms but you know the free turn decision about grabbing that felt like a non-decision you know kind of thing yeah. that you, you needed to get it otherwise if there's two like, good tiles out there you use your coin and you get both you, of them. you get both those tiles <laughs> right and really on your turn there was probably an obvious good decision to make and it's really a matter of did you see it or not i Mm -hmm. guess i with all that said i mean i'm kind of with you cameron in in my settings i think this game would be i think they would like it but i don't think we'd ever go back to the table the second time Mm. so i'm gonna give it a three because it's Mm. it was fun i enjoyed playing it i would play it again if somebody else brought it out but it's i just don't think it's for me gotcha I'm glad we disagreed on at least one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't play this game with your friends that are way smarter than you. 
You you will get just crushed. Yeah, uh, you don't give yourself enough credit. Cameron. Seriously, can't we? You <laughs> said it before. I mean, it. all right. Well, if you are interested in checking out Sealand, we there are well there is one copy available on Noble Knight. For $28. However, there are 15 copies available on BGG, so plenty of options out there if you're looking to pick it up. Okay. Very awesome. cool. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for this Gunter Burkhart designer episode of Hidden Gems. If you like what we're doing here, please remember it's a huge help to us if you would leave us a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on our various social media accounts. Those simple things can make a difference for this show's exposure so more folks can enjoy exploring games with us. Check out the BGG Guild if you want to interact with us or share a game that you think is a hidden gem. And if you're so inclined, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash hidden gems podcast or purchasing a t-shirt or a hat on our website at hiddengemsboardgamepodcast.com slash store. Until next time, I'm your host, Cameron. I'm Jason. Oh, dang it, Bill. Yeah, try it again. I'm your host, Cameron. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. Thanks for listening. This episode of Hidden Gems, number 49, was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina on March 12, 2023. Join us again in three weeks when we return to the mics to celebrate the 50th episode of Hidden Gems with three titles selected by you, our amazing audience. Hidden Gems is produced and edited by Chris Alley, Cameron Lockie, and Jason Yanchula. Associate producer on episode 49, Bill Arney. Our Board Game Geek Guild is monitored and managed by honorary Hidden Gems team member, Ghidorah. Our Discord channel is monitored and managed by honorary Hidden Gems team member, Snoozefest. Our show's logo was illustrated by designer and artist, Caitlin Nieto. Check out her work on Instagram at It's Caitlin Nieto. We would love to hear from you feel free to join the discussion on our many social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast, Instagram at hiddengems.podcast, and Twitter at Hidden Gems Board. Disagree with one of our reviews? Have something you want to say about one of the games we discussed today? You can also make your voice heard on our Board Game Geek Guild at boardgamegeek.com, guild number 3874. Once again, thank you for joining us on Hidden Gems, and until next time, fellow gem seekers, Enjoy your games and enjoy your search.